Hola, this is Raquel, and you're listening to the Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It's great to be with you today, really my honor to be with you on this Sunday, June 26th. We're continuing in our sermon series titled The Countercultural Christian. And today I'm going to talk about a statement we've all probably heard or even said in our lives, and that is, life is unfair. And to help us, we're going to be unpacking Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 to 6 for answers and insights. But before we do that, would you join me in an opening word of prayer? Let's go. Heavenly Father, we praise your holy name. Thank you for this amazing time that we have together. Open our hearts to receive your word in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. All right, open your Bible or Bible apps to Ecclesiastes 4, 1 to 6, and follow along as I read. Again, I observed all the oppression that takes place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, with no one to comfort them. The oppressors have great power, and their victims are helpless. So I concluded that the dead are better off than living. But most fortunate of all are those who are not yet born, for they have not seen all the evil that is done under the sun. Then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Fools fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin. And yet, better to have one handful of quietness than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. A while back, there was an article that appeared in a Kentucky newspaper, and this is how it read. I used to think I was poor. Then they told me I wasn't poor, I was needy. Then they told me it was self-defeating to think of myself as needy, that I was culturally deprived. Then they told me deprived was a bad image, that I was underprivileged. Then they told me that underprivileged was overused, that I was disadvantaged. Well, I still don't have a dime, but I have a great vocabulary. In Ecclesiastes 4, Solomon deals with an issue that frustrates many of us today. It's the issue of unfairness, that things just aren't always right and fair in this life. Solomon was reflecting on this truth when he wrote in verse 1 of our text, Again, I observed all the oppression that takes place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, with no one to comfort them. The oppressors have great power, and their victims are helpless. You know, inside each of us is an inner voice that tells us that all things should be fair. That's why sports games have referees and courtrooms have judges. We have an innate sense of right and wrong, and we serve a God of the universe who tells us that without a doubt, there is absolute right and wrong. But then we see oppression, tragedy, and sorrow. And inside of us, there's this inner voice that says, well, that just isn't right, or this shouldn't be happening. Or, how could we possibly fix this great injustice of life? The problem is that there are two conflicting truths about life's unfairness, and it just drives us nuts. The first truth is this. No matter how hard we try, we're never going to fix the problem. In other words, life is always going to be unfair. Well, for Jesus, he spoke in John 12, 8, and he said, You will always have the poor among you. Have you ever heard that before? Now, there are those who look at what Jesus said there, and they just feel like throwing up their hands in the air and walking away. 
I mean, after all, if the poor are always going to be with us, then why should we bother to try to help them to begin with? It's not going to do any good, right? Well, that may have been one of the motivating factors in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus said in Luke 16, 19 through 25, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen, and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. There, in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have pity! Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. And now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. Now why was the rich man not sharing anything with Lazarus? Well, the Bible doesn't say. But I personally think he was thinking of something like this. Why doesn't that guy just go out and get a job or something? He's always out here every day asking for food. It's really annoying. And if I give him food, it's going to encourage everybody else, all the other beggars, to come and annoy me. And besides, we're always going to have the poor with us, so my little bit of food won't make a dent. Well, the point of Jesus' story was don't go there. Don't go making excuses for why you don't help the poor. The rich man ignored Lazarus' hunger, and we all know where he went. And that brings us to our second truth that we have difficulty with, and that is this. Yes, life is always going to be unfair, but God says it doesn't matter. He calls his people to work at fixing it. The story is told of a man who had seen an injustice in his city, and in frustration, he prayed to God, why aren't you doing something about this? And God's voice came to him and said, I did do something. I sent you. There's also a great song out there by a Christian recording artist, Matthew West. It's called Do Something. It says the same thing. I encourage you to Google that or call that up wherever you have your music downloads. Matthew West song is called Do Something. You know, I learned something new when I was preparing this sermon. I usually find something new every week when I'm doing this, but this was really cool. Did you ever realize that when Jesus said, you will always have the poor among you, do you know what he was doing? He was quoting the Old Testament. Yeah, it's true. In Deuteronomy 15:11, God declared, there will always be some in the land who are poor. That is why I am commanding you to share freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. That's the verse Jesus was quoting in John 12, 8. You're always going to have the poor among you, so help them. That's the command of God to his people. In fact, this is a constant theme throughout scripture. For instance, in Proverbs 14, 21, God says, blessed are those who help the poor. In Proverbs 22, 9, God says, blessed are those who are generous because they feed the poor. In fact, this is such an important matter to God that he promises in Proverbs 19:17, if you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord and he will repay you. So what's God saying there? He's saying that you can expect him to pay you back with interest. That's how important helping the poor is to God. But on the other hand, God is very clear. Proverbs 21:13 says, those who shut their ears to the cries of the poor will be ignored in their own time of need. So in other words, if you turn your back on the poor, God will turn his back on you. Now, in my mind's eye, 
I can visualize Solomon just sitting there thinking about all this. He sees people in poverty being oppressed and misused. And he seems to be really frustrated about it. But now, wait a minute. What's Solomon's job description again? What does he do for a living? Well, he's the king, isn't he? If he's the king, then he should be able to pass some law or edict or something to fix all this, right? He should be able to punish someone who harms or oppresses the poor. Why isn't he doing that? And on top of that, Solomon is the wealthiest man on earth. Why doesn't he just give his money to the poor? You know, after thinking a lot about this, I really think Solomon already did that. I think Solomon had worked hard at removing all the oppression he could. And I'm thinking he did give away money to the poor. But it's like he's barely making a dent. Even if he gave everything away, people would still be poor. And it bothers him. So part of his discussion here in Ecclesiastes 4 is telling us why he can't fix it all. Look at verse 4 of the text with me. It says, Then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. You know what being envious is all about? Envious people look at what their neighbor has, and it makes them dissatisfied with what they have. So everything they do is always about getting more of what the other guy has. And because that's their driving passion, envious folks end up hurting themselves or others in their blind pursuit of more. You remember, of course, the tragedy that took place in our country on September 11, 2001. Islamic terrorists took over airplanes and murdered thousands of innocent people. And as a result, every airplane in America was grounded. This was an obvious safety measure to deal with the threat that we didn't even begin to understand. But as you can imagine, that hurt the airline industry. In fact, there was only one big carrier that was still making money the following year, and that was Southwest Airlines, although they were making about half of what they did the previous year. All the other airlines were losing money fast and either had declared bankruptcy or were seriously considering it because their creditors still demanded they pay their debts. So in an atmosphere where most airlines are struggling to survive, Southwest's employees had relative job security. And yet, some of the workers in one of its unions threatened to strike for higher wages. Why? Because some employees in one of those other airlines that was failing made more per hour than they did. Is that like insanity or what? These union workers were not content because somebody else in a failing and potentially bankrupt airline was getting more than they did? They were driven by envy, and envy can make you poor because you end up doing stupid stuff like that. And Solomon realized that was part of the reason for poverty and oppression. But Solomon realized there was a second reason that led to poverty, and that was that some people were just plain lazy. Look at verse 5 of the text. Fools fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin. In Proverbs 6, 10 and 11, Solomon put it this way. A little extra sleep, a little more slumber. A little folding of the hands to rest, then poverty will pounce on you like a bandit. Scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. According to a medical study cited by the BBC in October of 2010, I quote, Whether slim or fat, a person leading a sedentary lifestyle has similar chances of dying young to a smoker. Statistically, every week spent inactive is roughly equivalent to smoking a pack of cigarettes. Inactivity in children leads to obesity and reduced academic performance across all socioeconomic classes. But the BBC noted it's not just our health, but also our wealth that laziness affects. They said inactivity 
among working adults leads to an increased time off from work and decreased productivity. So Solomon's looking all around and he notices that many poor people are poor because they're too lazy to get off the couch. They'd much prefer a handout to a workout. Does that sound familiar about people today? There's a lot in that category. Now, don't look at this as an excuse not to help folks that are struggling. That's not what Solomon's saying. Solomon is simply pointing out that you can't fix everything in life. You can't remove all the poverty in the world. There's way too much greed and envy out there, and there's just way too much laziness to fix it all. Folks, unfairness, poverty, and oppression are just part of life, and we're never going to change that completely. And some of the hardships of life will be our own fault, but some of those hardships will be the fault of others. As Solomon said in verse 1, I observed all the oppression that takes place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. Solomon was greatly disturbed by that reality. And he's not the only one. Over the years, there have been a number of churchgoers who have decided themselves to deal with injustice and oppressors by engaging in something called social justice. Social justice is the idea that churches should focus primarily on poverty, slums, poor nutrition and education, alcoholism, crime, and war. Now, not that these are things we shouldn't be concerned about as Christians. We should be very concerned about poverty and slums and all the rest, no question. But we should seek to find ways to comfort those who have been hurt by those oppressors of the world. But the problem with the social justice crowd is they generally get everything out of whack. They're really off balance in their approach. The problem with social justice is that its supporters tend to believe that they need to change the culture of a person before you can talk to them about Jesus. For example, during the 70s and 80s, many of the social justice folks went down to South America and they tried to help people locked in poverty, hunger, and oppression. They rightly saw that much of the problem was created by selfish dictators. The answer? Overthrow the bad guys and remove them from power. Now think for a second. How do you overthrow a government? Well, you shoot people. And if you shoot at the bad guys, what are they going to do in response? That's right, they're going to shoot back. Truth is, a lot of people died because of those armed struggles. And even when they did succeed in removing a dictator, one worse than him comes in, generally speaking. That's why Jesus never endorsed violence in his preaching. Many years ago, I attended a seminar in Dallas where the speaker was introducing a different approach to social justice. He didn't talk about the violently opposing dictatorship thing but he felt that churches needed to deal with poverty and hunger before preaching the gospel. Now, he was partly right. Churches should always attempt to deal with poverty and hunger. I mean, it's hard to preach to someone dying of hunger. But if churches get in the habit of feeding people without talking to them about Jesus, they can eventually get into the habit of not talking about Jesus at all. And that's one of the major drawbacks of the social justice folks. They don't want to offend people that they want to help. They don't want to talk about sin. They don't want to go on record as being against abortion or same-sex attraction or living together because that might offend the people they're trying to help. Yet I noticed something else when I was working on this sermon that I'd never seen before. Remember a few minutes ago I quoted you, Jesus saying in John 12, 8, you will always have the poor among you? Well, you know, I never really thought to look up that verse. I just knew it was there and I took it for granted that that was all Jesus said in the verse. But folks, I was wrong. That's not all he said. I had only taken the first part of that verse, but there's more. Take a look at it. Open up your Bible or Bible app to John 12, 8. This is what the whole verse says. You will always have the poor among you, 
but you will not always have me. You know, when people quote Jesus about the poor from that verse, they never seem to mention the second part of his comment. And so as I was reading it, I wondered, why did Jesus say that? Well, partly, you have to go back and look at what was happening around that verse. The scene was Lazarus' house. Yes, the same Lazarus Jesus raised from the dead. And this was just a few days before Jesus will be arrested, beaten, crucified, and buried in the tomb. Lazarus' sister Mary was there, too. After Jesus and Lazarus ate, Mary comes and pours expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. When the disciples saw this, especially Judas, they were really upset. They complained that that perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And so that's when Jesus said, You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Do you know what Jesus was saying? He was saying there are priorities in our mission. Helping the poor was admirable, but service to Christ was even more important. You see, when Jesus appeared to his disciples on the mountain, just before going into heaven, he gave them their marching orders. He told them what their priorities were to be. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you see anything in there about helping the poor? Do you see anything there about working for social justice? It's just not there, folks. Not that these things are not important, don't get me wrong. I mean, in the first part of the sermon, I pointed out that one of God's highest priorities is to help the poor and the oppressed. But that priority is secondary to the command Jesus gave his disciples that day. Jesus said that our primary mission as Christians is to, number one, make disciples. Number two, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And number three, and number three teach them to obey everything Jesus had commanded. That's it. That's our prime directive. And when the disciples went out to do that, when they preached about Jesus and made disciples and so on, they often offended people. One time Peter stood before the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council of Israel. These men, including the high priest, were furious. They said in Acts 5.28, We gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name, he said. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death? Do you think maybe Peter had offended them? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that he had. Peter had preached about sin and the need to repent of that sin. He spoke truth in power. And it made folks angry. And then there's Paul. In one of his letters to the Corinthians, he talks about having been thrown in prison, flogged, whipped, beaten, stoned, run out of town. You think maybe he'd upset some folks along the way? Uh-huh, he sure had. That was part of his job description. And you know, the world of that time was not a fair and just place to be. There was poverty, injustice, and oppression that were as bad or worse than anything we might see in our day today. And you know what? Jesus lived in a time like that. And the disciples preached in a day like that. And Jesus' command to those disciples was this. Make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded them. And you know why the early Christians followed those orders? They did it because that was the only way they could change the hearts of men. When you change the hearts of men, you give them true freedom a freedom from sin and guilt and shame. And when people are freed from those chains, they are free indeed. 
and no force on earth can ever take away that freedom and that power in their lives. Amen to that. Let me bring this to a close. In 2009, my wife Jeannie and I traveled to the Philippines and we visited a missionary there on the island of Mindanao. This missionary took us to a little fishing village about a three-hour car ride away on the eastern coast of Mindanao. And that fishing village's name was Talakonga. She had been ministering there with some local ministers as well. Folks, the poverty there was some of the worst we'd ever seen. People had little food or no food, barely enough clothes on their backs or shoes on their feet. Their homes were generally dilapidated structures that were one room or two at best, and work was nearly non-existent. Most folks here in the U.S. would look on those people and have pity on them because they have nothing. But I will always remember something that Sister Mercy, a Filipino pastor, said to us. She said, There are people in this world that say we are poor, but no one is poor if you have Jesus. These people had a joy in their life that I have never seen here or in any other country that I visited. This was so genuine, so real. And though these people were poor by the world standards, they were cheerful and smiled because they loved Jesus and they knew he loved them. So my question to you today, my brother and sister, what about you? Do you know Jesus loves you? Do you know that he died on a cross for you? Do you know that he wants to have a relationship with you right now? If you're hearing this today, maybe the first time you've ever heard that Jesus loves you, he does. I remember the first time I ever heard it too. Changed my life. Well, he can change yours too. I hope that you'll talk to him. I hope you'll pray that you'll believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. I hope you'll confess your sins to him. Then I hope that you'll declare Jesus as Lord and be baptized, immersed under the water, and then rise up in newness of life to serve the Lord for all the days that you have. Thanks for taking time to be with us today. We look forward to seeing you again next time. Until then, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.